0: Salam and welcome to our podcast Muslims on Fire Stories from ordinary Muslims doing extraordinary things With your host Maruf Dear listener Based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com
1: Bismillah. Hey assalamu alaikum this is maruf welcome to the show muslims on fire and i have a special guest today she's from uk she is a experienced marketer and she works for Galvin Noor and she's also author of two amazing books. One of them I, I read. The other one is on the on my reading list. Assalamu alaikum. Sister Welcome to the show.
2: Wa salam. Thank you for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to talk to you and to learn a lot and looking forward to learn a lot from you today. So uh, let's dive in. Dick, why don't you introduce yourself? I think you will do the honor and I think you will do much better than me. Go ahead, please.
2: So I'm Shalina. I'm a British Muslim woman. I live in London and I am the vice president of Islamic marketing at Ogilvy, which mm-hmm. is a consultancy that works with the world's biggest brands to think about how to engage with Muslim audiences. So that's the, the day job that pays the bills. But I also <laughs> have a, a secret not so secret writing career. So, as you mentioned, I've published a couple of books. One is a memoir. So, anyone who wants to know all the details of my life can read that. And um, so, that's Love in a Headscarf, mm-hmm. Generation M, uh, an upcoming book, which maybe we can talk about later. And then um, I also write for newspapers and opinions. So, I have quite a varied life. Oh, and I have two little girls who occupy <laughs> lots of my time too. So, that is a full time job on its own.
1: Perfect. Perfect. So you have uh, your hands are full. I can see that. So why don't we do this? Like you you just mentioned your kids. Why don't we start your childhood? Why don't you take us to childhood, like take us maybe some memories you think uh, it it was meaningful to you and also maybe kind of contributed to who you are today? Uh, You know, what do you think that could be if you think back? Take us to your childhood. I
2: feel like we're in therapy, Mariv.
1: maybe we are you never know
2: (laughs) i was when i look back at myself i was a quite quiet child actually very shy which people find quite hard to believe um but very studious i loved going to school i loved learning i loved getting really great grades and my parents put a lot of emphasis on education Mm -hmm. we also spent a lot of time going to the mosque and being part of the Muslim community, both in terms of spiritual and religious practice, um, but also kind of my dad was very keen that we should be aware of what was going on in the world. So those things really shaped who I was. But together with that, like a lot of people growing up with similar backgrounds to me, I was constantly conflicted about who I was and my identity. So you know, at school, I was at one way, at home, I was something else, and at the mosque, I was something else. And really, the struggle to reconcile all these different parts of my identity was one of the overwhelming kind of things that, that really propelled me through my life in my teens and my 20s. And in a way, it was my Muslim identity that helped to resolve all those different tensions um, but you know, I was very lucky. I had a very blessed childhood. I, I had lots of blessings and privileges.
1: I see. I mean, with what's going on at school, usually you know a lot of things. Some it depends on the school. Sometimes there is bullying or not. And on top of that, deal with the identity crisis. That must that must be a bit challenging. Uh, it depends, I guess, where in UK and how it was. But we, we I did. I remember we talked to some sisters especially I think with sisters that is similar I just want to understand like at school like was it obvious or like how did you become to understand that you were different than others like was it like a gradual thing or I, I don't know like how, how would you describe it? As
2: a young child it was really simple things like you know talking about the food we ate at home mm. Mm-hmm. you know it wasn't fashionable when to eat international cuisine it was considered kind of smelly and different I remember <laughs> you know going to weddings and being very excited about having henna on my hands mm-hmm. but at school you had to scrub it off because partly the school itself didn't understand what it was and partly everybody else went "Ooh, you got worms on your hands I see so The kind of things that we now accept culturally and even celebrate at that time were things that I as a child, I felt I wanted to hide and I felt quite embarrassed about. And that that grew in terms of cultural and religious expression as I got older and, you know, my peers became knew more about the world, but in a way didn't understand any more than they did. And so I I spent a lot of my school years trying to hide who I was, and that, in hindsight, was, was very unhealthy. I think it was only when I got to university that I felt that I could more fully express who I was. It wasn't the end of the journey, but I felt I could present myself, all of myself, all at the same time.
1: I see. That's interesting insight. On, on that. So, here's the thing. Like you mentioned, you really loved school. You were really you know, getting great... You know uh, good grades from subjects is there was there any specific subjects that kind of that kind of stand out and you really enjoyed or you enjoyed all of them at the same? How did it work out for you?
2: I loved everything, and I think <laughs> this has been the great struggle of my life because I loved humanities and mm-hmm. I loved science so um for example, in the u k when you get to sixteen, you do your a levels
1: mm-hmm.
2: and at that time. Um, I think now they restrict it to three, it might be. At that time, I took four because I loved all of the subjects so much. I Mm. took an extra one. And that was partly, so partly I loved extra work. Um, which probably shows in the fact that I now try and do far more than I ought to. Um, But partly because uh, it was partly because I couldn't just limit my choices. And so I ended up doing both physics and maths. So, Hmm. you know, I wanted to leave the door open to being science oriented. And I also did French and Spanish. Hmm. Um, So I did humanities and I really wanted to do history and economics as well. Um, But the school said four was more than enough and I couldn't do six, <laughs> which made me really cross. I um, so I think that being torn between this kind of science orientation and the humanities orientation is something that I've, a struggle isn't the right word, because it's not unpleasant. It's like a real joy to be able to kind of sit in both camps. Um But I think it's something that it, you know, remains unresolved and it's probably one of the tensions that kind of propels me through understanding, mm. you know, wanting to be interested in people, but also interested in how things are done.
1: Very interesting. Actually, they're very interesting. So, like, um, I understand it. So you were actually really interested in all subjects, like, so... Because you see, one of the purposes of the show is that uh, try to understand like how one person evolves our time and try to understand like if possible, like trying to look back at connecting dots. But, hmm, interesting. So you finished school. So where would you go to study? Do, which which path did you take? Like did you take the humanities part? Did you take the, like follow the science? How did it work out for you after school?
2: So I actually went on to Oxford to do law. ah
1: and... law
2: so that was yeah that was unexpected (laughs) twist in the story and there's another one that follows which is i did law for a year and then i thought to myself actually this doesn't really fit with who i am and Mm -hmm. i couldn't really articulate why that was i think it was possibly because when i thought about the law as an 18 year old i thought about the application of it the human impact and actually because Oxford is Oxford it mm. was a much more theoretical academic um insight into the law which is entirely what Oxford is so it was it was that disconnect between what i was expecting and the fact that i really wanted to go to Oxford and they taught law in a different way so i actually switched to read psychology and philosophy
1: i see so and I see... ultimately Sorry, go on. No, no. Well, I think what you were trying to do, guys, you want to try like like impact the society by, you know, by making better law for human beings, and when, then you find out it's just theoretical. You cannot do much. Is, is it what, what happened at Oxford when you were studying law, or something else?
2: There's definitely something when you're eighteen.
1: You want to change you the have world.
2: aspiration yeah. to make the world better, and do you know what? absolutely every 18 year old should feel like that and I would say even every 80 year old should feel like that mm. but you know we hear every day to try and make something a little bit better even if it's a very tiny thing sure and my anticipation of what the law would be was very different from the reality of what was taught mm. at the time and I think the it's very easy to look back, isn't it, and kind of rationalise what might have been going on. But I do wonder, I'm really thinking out loud here, if there was just too much structure and constraint. And what I have discovered more latterly about myself is I prefer to either break with constraint or op- or write or think or behave in a way that, disregards what constraint it so there may there may have been something of that this kind of hmm. discovery of wanting to create and not obey the rules which if you don't really <laughs> want to obey the rules law is probably not the right
1: thing. <laughs> it is actually the rules right in end of the day i mean i think that's very common because i remember my university days i actually i mean in my case i was studying economics and it, i i found the same it was too much theoretical i wanted something tangible let's put it this way that's the way i kind of drop mm. out as well so okay so you took kind of did a bit, little bit detour now you went as you said psychology right and uh, that's where you went
2: yeah i think i think if anyone wants to take anything away from my career is that you can be very unorthodox and still do some really interesting things so i i studied psychology and philosophy mm-hmm. uh, because you know you're at oxford and you want to read about descartes and everybody is kind of living that very um you know, rose tinted view of what it's like at Oxford. But actually, I then went on to work in marketing. So that was a further leap. And that was, I think, the beginning of shaping my career. So that was consumer marketing, looking Mm -hmm. at technology. And I spent, you know, eight or 10 years looking at things like internet products, mobile phones, broadband, and consumer and business audiences. So it was A very exciting time to do that because it was as the internet was becoming a thing. It was when mobile phones went from something which was as big as a suitcase and people would laugh (laughs) at those who had a mobile phone to a point where everybody had one, if not more, mobile phones in their pocket and they were slim and they were beautiful and they were attractive. And we were just beginning to do things like having interesting content on them as well so it was a very exciting time so, to be part of an industry where where it was changing the way that we are behaving
1: absolutely that's exactly exactly what the psychology learns like why we do why what we do like i mean that's what i would understand so you studying psychology how did you end up in marketing what was the connection there was what what kind of i would like to understand there was some like there were some specific job offers or maybe you were exposed to something like that intrigued you into marketing or was it natural progress from your side? How did it end up? Like if you just be like what I would like to know, I guess that. So, did, so, I mean, you went to psychology. Did you after finishing the um, what's called after finishing the university at Oxford, did you like uh, there are different paths? It's not only marketing, right? You could have been there something else as well, but you went for marketing. What was the thing that actually pulled you towards that? That's what I try to understand.
0: You
2: know, the really difficult thing about podcasting is that nobody who's listening to this can see that I'm scrunching up my face and thinking really (laughs) hard about how I went from the degree I did to the first job that I had. And it's quite easy in theory to draw the line between studying psychology and going into marketing. There Hmm. is a natural. But I don't know. I, I, I think I don't know if other people have it. Maybe you have it. Sometimes you just get an idea and this is the thing that you want to do and you have a really strong inner feeling that this is what is right for mm-hmm. you. And <laughs> trusting that feeling is quite important. And and I can look back and I say, well, I remember doing some work for uh, the local newspaper and also doing some work in crafting some of the marketing ideas about a student radio that the Oxford University students wanted to set up. And I was involved in some of the the thinking around the marketing for that. Not because any of the students, including me, had any idea what marketing was. We kind of taught ourselves on the fly. Um, and I, I've always been very interested in people and how they think and how they react and why. So possibly that's how I got myself into applying for marketing traineeships
1: i see i see like but, okay
2: but i think it was just a feeling i think that's i just felt like that's what i wanted to do
1: yeah i mean look when it comes to podcasting that's what i really i'm, I'm still learning one of the things i literally learned is that there is most of the time when we, when i talk to people
0: childhood questions are sponsored by ali hoda Ali Huda is a video-on-demand streaming platform for Muslim children, where they can watch cartoons and shows while learning about Islam the fun way. If you are a Muslim parent, this will be one of your best investments. Visit www.alihuda.com for a 7-day free trial. Now back to the show...
1: There's not this one aha moment, this lightning from the sky, and they find the guidance, right? But it's actually opposite, different. Like we are, like we are, in the blind people in the darkness, stumbling upon <laughs> things, right? Try to figure out things here and there, and like you said, you know, you just try it out, and, and there's this gut feeling, you just follow it, and it, it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. You have to go back and try again, and that that's the struggle. That's like raw human emotion, and that's what I really like. A podcast is that. You uh you get into that point and try to figure out. Like I know it's not easy, trust me. And sorry for putting in the spotlight, but I guess in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is like what children, by telling stories, we're trying to put ourselves, if possible, in your shoes and say, hmm, that's how it worked. Maybe it works for me as well. So don't I think, th- don't worry about I,
2: it. I think in a way, I would I would say that you can have light bulb and aha moments. The difference or the important thing is to activate them that mm-hmm. so I can I can look back at some moments which I remember clearly are turning point moments
1: mm.
2: and you know when you recount your story of how you got where you are they kind of become part of the the narrative but you know they feel very strong moments and two of them for me were turning points in my career so one of them was when I had started writing my blog so I spent about 10 years in in marketing and product development Mm -hmm. and then things like you know 9-11 and July 7th happened I started writing my blog but one of the moments I remember very clearly was after my blog had been going for a while and people had been following my writing and you know starting to say things like you should write a book and I thought well books are for famous people who have mm. interesting lives I remember very clearly going into our local bookshop and there was a, a table of books about Muslims mm-hmm. and I I remember very distinctly looking at that table and thinking none of these are my story mm-hmm. because they were all pictures of women in veils with camels behind them I see and that they were moment, so outdated it, Uh, well unfortunately a lot of that still happens although for although on the other side we do have a lot fresher and (laughs) more diverse literates improving but nonetheless yeah Yeah. but that moment was very clear to me and I remember standing in that bookshop because I looked at them and I thought who is going to write the book Hmm. that is like my story and the next thought was you're gonna have to do it yeah and that was that was a, a, a changing moment. I'd been kind of thinking about it for a while because, you know, i had been writing a blog and, you know, I think everybody has the aspiration that they want to write a book. But it was really that conversation in my head that was a life changing moment. And then there was another one later and we can, it almost skips forward to where I am at Ogilvy, where after the book had been published. Mm-hmm. Um, I started writing a lot more for newspapers and other publications and thinking more about what Muslim identity meant more generally beyond myself, but to Muslims more generally. And I had written about this trend that I noticed that Muslims were asking brands, were developing products that were aimed at Muslims. Mm. And there was a kind of tussle about what it would mean to have a, a product and a brand for Muslims and the kind of values that should be in it. And that got quoted um by the CEO of Ogilvy at a conference that I was covering. Mm-hmm. And so um so in hindsight, I don't know if I was completely crazy or very brave that I just <laughs> went up to talk to him. He was the CEO of, you know, a huge worldwide company. And and that's how I found myself at Ogilvy. So those two moments very clearly in my mind where something was talking directly to me, and then I actually did something about it,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: are possible are two very pivotal, very clearly pivotal moments in my life.
1: Very interesting, like uh, very interesting points. Yeah, I mean, interesting. So you actually, yeah, the, writing your first book. This is what, what book is the Love in the Headscarf, right? You Love mentioned. in the Headscarf. So, yeah, That's so true. this
2: is. This is my attempt to be humorous and funny, but also tell a very personal story.
1: I see. that one I haven't read yet. Maybe I should have read before this interview. I'll have more interesting questions, but that's interesting. Okay. So, and then the next point you said, that's when you took, like, uh, bald to talk to Ogilvy. I think we're going to come to that in a bit moment. So this is what I would like to step a little bit back. So you finished the, the, the school and you started working at different marketing agencies at the time. So I, this is what I want to understand. Like, Later on, as you said, that one of the paths you took is at Ogilvy nor This is Islamic marketing branch at Ogilvy. So I want to understand the backstory. Is it is it your initiative? Is it how it got created? Or it was created and you joined later?
0: Psst. If you are an entrepreneur with a product or service for the Muslim market, let's get in touch. We are halal.ad. Ad a marketing agency and ad network for the ever-growing Muslim market. We can help you reach millions of Muslims to grow your business. Visit www.halal.ad for a 30-minute free consultation. Now back to the show.
2: It was it was created and mm-hmm. the conference that I mentioned was where it was being launched.
1: Ah, oh, I see. So it was
2: very much in that... Um, almost you could call it a startup phase within the larger Ogilvy network I see. and so I joined very soon after it had been set up.
1: I see I see I see so I see I see so Kirill would you like to tell us a bit more what 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 do you do what does it do Ogilvy know and, and how is the helping the brands to understand the most market and to reach out to the consumers?
2: The thinking behind ogilvy islamic marketing is that there is a muslim consumer um a a muslim audience that wants brands businesses and organizations to connect with them through their muslim identity and it's very important that for both muslims and people who are not muslim that we are not talking about muslims being defined only by their muslim identity Mm. but saying that there is something about faith as muslims particularly for this consumer group, which we've called Generation M, mm-hmm. that wants to be connected through its Muslim identity. So that doesn't mean that, you know, you're walking down the street and somebody's trying to sell you a newspaper and it has to be, it has to say, Muslim person, there's newspapers for you. Of course that would be entirely ridiculous. <laughs> but there are some points in your daily life or in the way that you're thinking about the products that you buy that would connect to you as a Muslim. And that's the that's where we try to find the conversation that the brand can have with the Muslim audience. So a really obvious example would be during Ramadan.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So really making sure that brands understand what the Ramadan experience is about and how the brand can support a Muslim in having a better Ramadan experience. So for myself and the work we do, we're very conscious that this is not about, you know, selling more. It's about connecting better with what you're doing and building that relationship. But, you know, it could be something um, quite different. It could be, for example, if you're buying fashion items, what does modest fashion, for example, look like? Or it could be if your audience, if you want to reach out to Muslim women um, you know what are the challenges that they're having in their lives that you can help connect with in the way that perhaps you depict them in your imagery or the conversations you have or the influences you use so there's a whole range of different things you can do when it's appropriate to connect people through them with some identity and that's the work that we do with the, the big companies
1: i see like uh like in terms of your clientele like um, is it is it mainly Muslim brands, or sometimes uh, you know from our no, I, I know from our agency what started happening is that and sometimes non Muslim brands can, but they have a product for a Muslim audience, right they want to reach out to that audience as well, and how would it like how would it, how does it work with in your case? is it like fifty fifty or mainly muslims how how does it work for with we work,
2: we work with a mixture of brands, but interestingly. Because Ogilvy is itself a a global brand, Mm -hmm. we tend to work with other big global brands, which actually may not be what people might describe as Muslim brands. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean to say that their products and their brands and their brand's purpose don't connect to Muslims. So that's what we're trying to find the connection of, is how can the the brand and the product Mm -hmm. feel relevant and resonate with Muslim audiences in a way that's authentic and in a way that is actually meaningful and not just kind of window dressing.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the questions would be very interesting to ask you, is, since based on the background, is that, you know, if you look back, just even 30, 40 years ago, there was no such a thing that marketing to Muslims. Would you agree with that? And it's something it's coming up like the last 10 years, that's something picking up and we can see the trend going up. That's, what's your thought on that?
2: So if anyone wants to read Generation M, there's some good <laughs> content to do that. Little little plug for the book.
1: Yeah, that would be
2: you're right. We've really seen the rise of um, engaging with Muslim audiences really since after 2001. Those mm. were the first seeds. And perhaps the most notable, for people who can remember that far back, would be a product like Maca Cola. So this was mm-hmm. a cola that was positioned as for Muslims, as the name would suggest, in order to make a statement about their Muslim identity. And the whole case study around Makakola is very interesting for whoever wants to go away and read about it. I mentioned it in the book. Did I mention the book? Anyway, so that's that's really where the story, mm-hmm. in my view, begins about people thinking about products as a way to express their Muslim identity and using consumption as a way of expressing who they are as muslims and what is very powerful about the growing space of the islamic economy and people will hear it referred to differently as you know islamic economy islamic branding we call it islamic marketing mm-hmm. some lifestyle marketing halal branding are all these different names is mm-hmm. that it has really been a grassroots movement so people have been exercising their consumption power Mm -hmm. in order to build a market and the reason it's grown is that a lot of consumers said we can't find the products that we need which are great products really good customer service good quality and fulfill our aspirations to live our muslim lives Mm -hmm. so we're going to set it up ourselves and then we're going to make that something that we can benefit from but also other people can benefit from and so people like you and many of the others that you featured on the podcast series are exactly those kind of people who've started to grow mm. the whole sector and therefore what has happened is that the muslim the identity as muslim consumer has started to crystallize and we start to understand who the audience is and that's very very powerful And when we look at kind of the institutions and the Muslim countries that have been trying to grow more widely, you know, the economic status and the service provision for Muslims, that connection still needs to be made stronger between the consumer movement Mm -hmm. and the institutional movement, because actually when you go to lots of large conferences and you think about lots of, you know, government initiatives, what is often missing people like me who go to these conferences kind of for a living will say is (laughs) what's missing is the consumer voice. And until you know what people want and why and how to engage with them and how to in quotation marks sell and by sell, I mean, you know, get them to take up the service or product. We can't create a real shift and that, Mm -hmm. That kind of that circle still needs to be squared. And I think that's quite an interesting space that actually Muslim consumers have just gone. Well, if nobody else is doing it, we're going to do it ourselves. And that's really exciting. Right. That's a lot of people taking the initiative into their own hands to create something really beautiful and new and much needed. And that's why every time a product comes up, you're like, why did nobody think of that? We need that product. It's so obvious. But it's so exciting that people are busy creating those things.
1: I see. I see. I mean, uh, that's very in- insightful. So, so I mean, l- let me ask more about, the, if you don't mind, about the generation M. I know we have the. I have read the book, and I would encourage people to read the book as well. So, I mean, what was your inspiration to write? I understand that London Sky was your story. You wanna, you want to share your story in a relative way, and you don't. So, you, you want to own your voice. But what was your inspiration for writing the generation M, and how did it came to be?
2: There were two parts to why i wrote the book primarily it was as a way of bringing to life the work that i'm doing at ogilvy so Mm -hmm. it was very much written under the auspices of ogilvy to explain in an engaging narrative format who exactly the muslim audience is and to do that you have to understand what young muslims are all about because that is where the change is coming as the title says young muslims changing the world
0: Mm
2: -hmm. so it was really an exposition of this huge movement that's happening around the world right before our noses and which nobody else is really talking about so it was really in my mind it was for the thinking reader who wants to know what's happening in the world and where the world is going to go that was the the sort of driver behind it but as comes through in the narrative and when you write a book it is an investment of time and love and so you have to write a book because you really believe in what you're saying it was almost a follow-on from the book I had written about myself mm-hmm. "Love in the headscarf to say okay well this is the this is the first stage of discovery of Muslim identity that I went through but actually when I look at Muslims who are now growing up Hmm. there is something very interesting happening with their identity and with the way that they relate to the world which it's important that the world knows because this is not what's being put on the headlines of the front pages of the newspapers
1: it's it's happening in the background slowly but surely right
2: well I would be stronger than that it's not happening in the background it's happening before our eyes it's happening on the streets and if you compare what's on the headline of a front on of a newspaper on the front page Mm -hmm. and then you step out of your door in a big city pretty much anywhere in the world they are two entirely different things and yet this huge shift of 1.8 billion muslims around the world of which two-thirds are under 30 so very young fastest Mm -hmm. growing demographic in the world youngest population highest fertility rates living in the countries which have the fastest growing economies you have to stop and ask yourself Why aren't we talking about what's really happening with young Muslims and this huge amount of positive, optimistic, creative energy Mm -hmm. that's driving these young Muslims? All the things that we just talked about a minute ago. Why isn't that on our radar? Because that is most certainly going to impact our world. And actually that. That kind of um, balance that these young Muslims are trying to strike are actually going to be one of the great resources we can draw on to tackle the world's big challenges because if you have two-thirds of 1.8 billion people who are really trying very hard to live a great life and of course not everybody's succeeding not everybody's the same but there is an aspiration to live a great life that is of benefit Mm. and wanting to make the world better then we need to pay attention to those people and that was really the driver personally for me writing the book and the way that I wanted to write the book and I would certainly hope that anyone who's read it finds it you know very personable and very engaging it's not written as an academic book you know Absolutely. it's kind of not referenced in a, in a traditionally academic way the book is just full of hundreds of voices and quotes from Muslims doing their thing my mine is just my voice is really just to kind of stitch all of that together and Mm -hmm. curate it and offer a kind of confidence to the reader that, you know, these all fit together. But for me, it was a chance to give a platform to so many other people's voices and to hear directly from young Muslims in a way that we just never get the chance to do in our public discourse.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, when we did your research, I mean, you talked to this young Muslims coming up and did did you discover what was the catalyst? Like, I mean, why did it start happening now? Not, not like 30 years ago. I mean, we've been, we were here, right? We, Muslims were here 30, 40 years, even before that. But why is it happening now? What's, what's your thought on that at this point so there in are,
2: time? There are, there are two overwhelming drivers.
0: Do you struggle with Dean and dunya balance in your life? Meet Salam.app. A Muslim social network where your ego, nafs, is not in the center. It is a place to feed your soul with daily inspiration, to make new Muslim friends and connect with Ummah. Visit www.salam.app and download free for your iPhone or Android. Simply put, so the
2: first is... This huge spotlight on Muslims after September the 11th, -hmm. July the 7th and, and other occasions like that, where young Muslims who have been born after these events or grown up as they are happening, many of them decided that the right response to it was to wear their identity on their sleeve and to learn more about what it means to be Muslim and to to embrace and be proud of that identity. So that's often why you hear younger Muslims talking about rediscovering religion, going back to the roots of Islam in a way that they feel that their parents didn't. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first one. It's this kind of big political backdrop. And the second part is really it's around the turn of the millennium that we see the Internet first start to develop. And then obviously that morphed into social media. And what that meant for young Muslims was that this idea of ummah, that Muslims embrace the global Muslim nation, was suddenly a reality because you could use the internet to connect with all other like-minded Muslims around the world, find out what was happening with them. You weren't limited anymore to your family circle or your local mosque or you know the local imam that you may or may not connect with. You could start to talk about values With Muslims around the world. And on top of that, what we were talking about earlier, if you decided that you needed products or services to help you to live your Muslim life, the economics of the Internet meant that you could start to develop a business and you Mm -hmm. could start to sell your products and equally to buy products to uphold those Muslim values. And that circle of consumption then consolidates a the Muslim identity because everybody's buying similar things, they're wearing similar things, they're talking about similar products and brands. And that really started to proliferate a, a global Muslim identity. So that doesn't mean all Muslims everywhere are the same, but there is a kind of feeling, mm. you know, whether you're in Abu Dhabi or Australia or the UK or America, where you can start to identify what this young Muslim generation is all about. And I think those two things in parallel, the kind of social political context and also the rise of the internet giving a platform to a global Muslim conversation, have resulted in the emergence of Generation M.
1: I see. Very insightful. Would you, you, you briefly mentioned at the beginning of the talk that you are in the process of writing your third book. Is that correct? Yeah, I decided, so this is, I'm going to blame,
2: <laughs> I'm going to blame my two gorgeous girls um, okay. because they've got me into reading children's books. So I'm actually writing, a, well, it's already written, it's going to be published in May, a children's book called The Extraordinary Life of Serena Williams.
1: Oh, the, the tennis player, right? Yes, the
2: okay. tennis player who is an inspiration to so many people. So that is a new foray. And I tell you what, writing books for children is tough. I think it's tougher than writing them for grown-ups. <laughs> uh, so I'm quite excited about that coming out.
1: So, so so tell us like how did it come about is it uh, Williams it is, is like is like a collaboration with her did you talk to her to get her story or it was just you're writing on, on your own it's It not. is
2: a it's part of a series of extraordinary lives with Puffin Books which is a children's oh, book publisher and um we were having a conversation about whether I would write like to write about somebody amazing and Serena Williams was on the list because hmm. I think she has done a lot to change the way we think about women in particular and what it means to be a successful woman
1: mm-hmm.
2: and how you, how you come through challenges. So she's faced you know, huge challenges, including poverty, racism, sexism. And I think what really sealed the deal for me at the end is the way that she's dealt with motherhood and work and her honesty with the struggles of becoming a mum but also wanting to fulfill your career and the things that you've built up. And you know she keeps she keeps inspiring. So when I announced that that book was coming out, I had a phenomenal response because I think partly people are just really excited to read her life and yeah. partly I think drawing inspiration from people who are quite different to us is a really important part of for certainly for me of being muslim. Mm-hmm. And I think that also resonated with lots of other people. So I'm quite excited for that to come out.
1: That's cool. I have two daughters, so looking forward to make it, you know come out. I would like to. I might also read it and then see how it goes. I?
2: Yeah, I often have conversations with parents going, "Yeah, we're buying it for our kids, but we're really reading it for ourselves."
1: Okay, sounds good. So you see, um, let me ask this. So. You know, when I was, I, you know, usually when I do it sometimes is uh, I, I announce and I say, I'm talking to this person. If you have any questions from our network and sometimes people ask and I have a couple of questions, if you don't mind, uh, I would like to ask really? from the audience. So so one of the questions came out like what inspires you on a daily basis? How do you get inspiration? What would you say to that?
2: Yeah, that's. I think my real honest answer would be to say some days I feel really inspired Mm -hmm. and some days you just need to get the stuff done to get through the day Mm -hmm. and I have increasingly taken approach which is it's better just to be honest about that so on some days you know you need to just get the kids to school and you need to get through the list of emails and the pile of work that you need to do and then you need to have enough energy to feed the children and put them to bed and then collapse but some days Some days something has happened in the world and you think, I need to make a response to that. And that for me is a very powerful creative driver. So when I feel very passionately about something that is wrong and needs to be addressed or equally something that's right and needs to be celebrated. Sometimes I think the overarching thing that inspires me is to create something that can change other people's minds so love in the headscarf was really un- ungeneration and were both born from the idea that we needed a different way to tell a story mm-hmm. and they are not things that can be written or created overnight but i love i love the fact that you can make something that never existed before And it can be beautiful and it can add something positive to the world. Certainly that's your hope. That's my hope when Mm. I write a newspaper article or I create a book or I stand up and give a speech that a thing that never existed could be create, you know, you you can bring it to life. You can have an idea in your head, which only you can create, not because you're, you know anointed or anything but because as a Muslim I believe that God gave you some creativity gave you some thought gave you a unique set of experiences that helps you to convey an idea in a way that maybe nobody else can and which may give other people energy or inspiration or just food for thought and then watching the impact of that, that for me is the most powerful thing that you can create and it can impact. And if it can, o- even if it only impacts one person, that's still counts.
0: incredible. <laughs>
2: that's, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think when you get a chance to talk to other people, if you have a platform like this podcast, for which I'm so grateful to be invited onto, that is a privilege. That is an incredible gift and you have to make the most of it and so when when I you know I I mentor people or I talk to them about public speaking and people often say things like you know I don't feel qualified to be on the platform or I feel very nervous Mm. I don't want to do it I don't have the expertise all the things that you know people often say why they don't want to be in a public And and I just say this there is something that you everyone as an individual has to say which can make the world better and mm-hmm. if somebody gives you a platform to do that take it because that is the biggest gift you can get which is the chance to say something that might affect somebody else positively so i i think every platform is a privilege
1: absolutely like i i i heard somewhere that you know one of the guys was saying that instead of have to, you have to change the word get to and the world changed, right? Instead of I have to speak, yeah, we get to speak, you know, it's a chance, as you said, it's a privilege and we have to, we have to take advantage of that. Mm, to I like that. Yeah, that's nice. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm
2: taking that. I like that.
1: <laughs> cool. So look, what does success mean to Shalina, Jan Muhammad? Well, how would you describe it? What does success mean to you?
2: I feel like I should have to <laughs> have a snappy sound bite ready for this one.
1: No, it's 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 coming unexpected. That's on purpose. So we want to get there.
2: What does success look like? Do you know I think I think when we look at other people,
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's easy for us to define them as successful. When we look at ourselves, we have quite a different opinion. Mm. And so
1: We know too much, maybe.
2: (laughs) Well, I look at my CV and you have to sort of write, you know, you have to write your profile to send to people. And I think, well, you know, I, I went to university, huge privilege. I have had a solid career, which is a huge privilege. I've written two coming up with three books. And yet to me inside, I feel like, I don't know if I have achieved everything that I want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so rather than necessarily giving you a soundbite of what success means to me, maybe I just want to share this work in progress with people to say that what we feel about ourselves and how other people see our success are two quite different things. Mm. And actually what I've learned is is important but I don't always live up to this is that is not to downplay your achievements to others that doesn't mean you should overstate your achievements but to be aware that what you have achieved are achievements and to own them when you're in public even though inside you know it might not feel like we've really achieved what we've achieved or we've achieved that success or actually we may have a different standard for it and I think I think that's okay. That's where I am in my life right now, that it's okay to inside feel like I haven't achieved all the things I want to, or that some days I don't feel as successful as other people might think. I see. does that make sense? It I makes
1: so. total sense. That that's the whole purpose. That's why we don't give out the questions. And uh, we want to get this, you know, thinking going on. We don't want sound bites. We want this, as I said, raw human emotion, right? Like what's coming out. And that's very, very insightful. And, you know, I'm just thinking, like we've been talking for a while now, I'm just thinking, like, the, the decisions you, you made in your life and, and, and different things. It reminds me a quote I, I recently read out. I think it's from... Late Steve Jobs, he says that, I, I'm sure you have read it somewhere. He says, when you grow up, you tend to, to get told the world isn't the way it is, right? You live in just a, just inside the walls of the world. Try not to bash into the world too much and try to have a nice family life, have fun, save a little money. That's, and he says, he says, that's very limited life. Life can be much broader when you one simple fact, that everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And, and and you can change it, like, and you can influence it. Once you learn that, you will never be the same again. I think when we go back to that moment when you were in that bookstore, right, you were looking at these books and say, you know what? These are the books that don't present me. You know, I can do my, you know, that's not my voice. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do something. I'm going to write. I'm going to, you know, take the, take the leap, take the first step. And that was a very brave, bold move. And I think... Many things might just come after that. And thank you for taking that move and sharing your insights, the books with us and uh, in your work uh, through Ogilvy. And uh, we are here learning. We learned so much today and uh, looking forward to see more of your work. And uh, is there anything, any website you would like to mention so we can put it in the show notes and share here? You can,
2: it would be lovely to have people follow me on Twitter. Sure. Um, so you can go to Love in Headscarf yeah okay which is my qt uh twitter handle and that's where i do most of my commentary and thinking i'm also on facebook and instagram but um twitter is really a great place to go and you can check the ogle v islamic branding website as well if you want to learn more about the work and check out my books um but yeah follow me on twitter and i can send you all the links that you
1: need yes that would be awesome thank you very much for being here it's been a pleasure thank you Assalamu Alaykum Salaam.
0: Dear listener, based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com For show notes and questions for episodes, please visit www.muslimsonfire.com Subscribe on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like our show, please rate, share with friends, and leave a review. With your help, it will enable us to reach more people and change their lives for the better. Stay tuned. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.